Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. We're racing forward to do our part to avert the climate hell that the U.N. Secretary General so passionately warned about earlier this week. President Biden pledges U.S. leadership and funding at U.N. Climate Summit. U.S. and China resume formal climate negotiations. Plus, that result means Democrats would once again control the Senate. Democrats hold on to thin Senate majority, holding line on U.S. climate policy. All of those thin majorities and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And let me tell you this evening. If we were ready for the green agenda, I'll raise my hand right now, but we're not ready right now. We're not prepared. We're not ready right now. What we need to do is keep having those gas-guzzling cars. Ladies and gentlemen, Georgia's Republican U.S. Senate candidate, Herschel Walker. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the election that continues to continue, uh, <laughs> continues to inform our outlook on the climate. But first, we're stuck dealing with what happened in Florida. Yes, we are. Hurricane Nicole caused an estimated 5 to $7 billion in damages after it slammed into Florida last week as a rare November hurricane, destroying roads, bridges, and dozens of beachfront buildings. That's according to AccuWeather. So another billion-dollar-plus storm as these things continue to pile up in recent years. Yes, they do. In other news, as we go to air, Democrats have retained their razor-thin majority in the U.S. Senate, but control of the U.S. House is likely to narrowly go to Republicans. Congress matters because it will determine where and how quickly funding is deployed for climate and clean energy projects under President Biden's landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act, and whether the U.S. will follow through on funding commitments to help developing nations adapt to the climate crisis. President Biden spoke at the United Nations Climate Summit, COP27, in Egypt on Friday, announcing that thanks to Democrats passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. is now on track to meet its pledge under the Paris Climate Agreement to cut its emissions 43 percent by 2030. Biden apologized for the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement during the Trump administration. Good. He should. And he urged major emitters that are responsible for man-made global warming, like the U.S., to move faster to cut greenhouse gas emissions to prevent overshooting 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming to avoid catastrophic impacts. If we're going to win this fight, every major emitter nation needs to align with the 1.5 degrees. We can no longer plead ignorance to the consequences of our actions or continue to repeat our mistakes. Everyone has to keep accelerating efforts throughout this decisive decade. Yes, we do. Of course, beginning with us, but hopefully what we're doing and that $400 billion we've allocated under the new bill is that... Uh, encouraging the rest of the world to do the same? It does seem to be helping. COP27 this year is focused on international climate finance under the Paris Agreement. That is getting rich nations that are primarily responsible for the crisis to boost funding to help poorer countries adapt to climate impacts and avoid becoming dependent on fossil fuels. After decades of resistance, there is some progress. Denmark pledged half a billion dollars to finance adaptation in Namibia. Europe, the U.S., 
U.S. and Japan announced $20 billion to help Indonesia ditch coal. Overall, the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia are laggards on climate finance. Mm-hmm. Biden pledged that the U.S. will quadruple funding to help other nations fight climate change, increasing U.S. contributions to a climate resilience fund to $100 million plus $150 million in new funding for adaptation and resilience projects in Africa. However, Congress must approve any new U.S. funding. Exactly. The new Congress can stop all of that. Plus, President DeSantis can just call it all off. The U.S. also proposed launching an international carbon credit trading system, which would allow corporations to pay someone else to cut emissions. That would raise revenue for developing nations, but it was criticized as a way for rich countries to avoid taking responsibility for causing the climate crisis. And it matters because a new analysis from the global carbon budget concludes that at current emissions rates, nations will likely burn through their remaining carbon budget in nine years, causing the world to blow past past that critical 1.5 degrees Celsius target under the Paris Agreement. Finally, some good news. Thank you. Biden's diplomacy blitz appears to be working. On Monday at the G20 meeting, the White House announced that the U.S. and China, the world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, will resume formal climate negotiations, which experts called a significant development, opening up a pathway for greater emissions cuts. So the U.S. and China are talking again about climate. There's that. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Come together right now. Over me. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. It's Thanksgiving weekend. As troubled as this time is for so many, there is always something to be grateful for, and making sure to focus on that is a proven tactic for getting through difficulties, large and small. This year, One of the things I'm grateful for is the outpouring of support Interfaith Alliance was able to muster for the Respect for Marriage Act from among faith leaders and so many others across the nation. As part of our Senate Lobby Day earlier this month, we heard from a number of those faith leaders on why this piece of legislation is so important. On this week's show, you'll hear some of those stories. But first, I'll sit down and talk Thanksgiving with Rabbi Joshua Stanton, one of the foremost Jewish and interfaith leaders in America. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders in the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. 
Rabbi Joshua Stanton is the rabbi at East End Temple in Manhattan and senior fellow at Klal. He serves on the Board of Governors at the International Jewish Committee for Interreligious Consultation and has been named by the Coexist Forum as one of the foremost Jewish and interreligious bloggers in the world. Rabbi, happy Thanksgiving in the world. It's great to have you here with us. It's it great to be, to be in conversation. And thank you for teaching me everything I know about blogging. My goodness. Oh, my God. I feel responsible. You know, you are you are so, you are so much more than a blogger. But but that is uh, your international fame is is well deserved. Anyway, thank you for being here. Um, you're really one of my uh, the the religious leaders I love and respect so much, and uh, just you know appreciating everything you're doing in this world. So let's dive right in. And I, I'm already talking about gratitude. I'm I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the way that you show up. I'm grateful for the way that your faith just oozes out of you, and at the same time, it it brings you into spaces that aren't necessarily comfortable and familiar, but it it, it, it invites you into adventure. And I just think that what you what you have offered me and and American religion uh, in these times is just so so wonderful. So so maybe you can start us off with a little bit of talk about the role of gratitude in in Judaism. And and what and maybe give us some perspectives on the way we could be thinking about um, Thanksgiving this year. Absolutely, one of the things that I love the most is that in Jewish tradition, Thanksgiving is something that is seen to require preparation. You don't just walk in to your Thanksgiving table and say, "I'm so thankful." And I think that many of us remember some of the more awkward conversations going around the table and being thankful. And those conversations tend to be filled with platitudes because it's not easy to come in, sit down and overflow with gratitude. And in Jewish prayer in the Amidah, which is one of the central prayers of our tradition, there are actually three different steps, the last of which is thanksgiving. The first is praise, recognizing the good, recognizing God, recognizing relationship, recognizing connection. The second is an acknowledgement of all that you still want and need in this world. They are a series of petitionary prayers in which you express that which isn't yet okay in your life. And finally, having expressed praise for that which is awe-inspiring, having expressed, uh, given word to all that isn't yet awe-inspiring, finally, finally, you conclude with thanksgiving, acknowledging that which is good, that which is important. And your final words in this prayer are a prayer for peace, the ultimate source of inspiration for feelings of thanksgiving. And so I just love that our tradition acknowledges thanksgiving is not easy, it's not automatic. And what I would hope is that we take some time to do the inner work that gets us to a place of thanksgiving, that it's not just an automatic Pavlovian response to the smell of turkey and gravy, that we do the inner work to get to a place that we can feel it more deeply inside. I I think that's an amazing, um, that gratitude and Thanksgiving is a process and not just a destination. And I think recognizing, I think one of the, one of the things that, 
we're kind of slapped on the hand when we when we think about oh you know there's some areas of my life that is are not great you know and that are very like that I have so much sorrow or need or want or you know broken relationships um, feeling of scarcity of of basic food and and housing all of that kind of stuff I mean if you just say oh well just be grateful that's not fair. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's really not fair and it's not real. And so I think what you're like, what, I, what the, uh, the, the Jewish um, kind of um, uh, almost a pilgrimage of gratitude uh, really allows for the recognition that this is an incredible world. Things are not perfect for me. And yet still. Uh, and I think that that is beautiful. I, I wonder if you, you know, in your life, you have. You have so many different relationships um, with with you know both personal as well as um, other faith traditions, faith communities, other like things going on in the nation. I wonder where you look and see what's awesome, where you feel like things are still lacking uh, or broken, and, and then what are you grateful for? So let's let's use that let's use that um, blueprint. To really talk for you personally uh, as a as a as a, a rabbi in in America right now, where is there brokenness, and where am I feeling gratitude? Um, and I think that this year in particular, the two fit together very closely. There has been such an upswing in anti-Semitism in ways that would have been unfathomable six years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. And the tropes being used, be it uh, the replacement theory, which is straight out of a neo-Nazi handbook, to the very campaign slogan, America First, which was a neo-Nazi campaign slogan, to Dave Chappelle skits, which have long since stopped being funny, to Kanye West, who has long since stopped being talented, to Kyrie Irving, who uh, speaks... uh, perhaps beyond his area of expertise in ways that are deeply hurtful to the number of people who casually drop George Soros and conspiracy theories about Jews on a day-to-day basis. So what we're hearing and seeing and feeling is heartbreaking. And what gives me hope when I'm able to acknowledge all of the pain that uh, a lot of Jews are feeling in the public square and in their day-to-day lives I'm feeling really a lot of gratitude for the allies. And to name a few, in addition to the one with whom I'm speaking today, um, Paul, you have done so much to stand alongside the Jewish community. You feel a sense of kinship with the Jewish community for many reasons, but you walk the walk of your faith in making sure that your Jewish brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors are not targeted. The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis has been standing up and speaking out brilliantly about the importance of solidarity with the Jewish community. It happens that Middle Collegiate Church actually meets at East End Temple right now for really tragic reasons that they're building uh, burnt down during the pandemic. But the beauty has been the set of relationships that have emerged between our community members and the sense of real solidarity and kindness and care. It's the- I know. I, I'll just interject there that like that is one of the most beautiful stories of uh, interreligious affiliation and, and sense of um, 
sense of love uh, that you welcome that congregation um, that is so important to the American, uh, especially the New York uh, religious landscape. Welcome them into your sanctuary. And um, it's just it's extraordinary. Uh, So I just want to I don't want to gloss over that. What you know, what your what East End did and is doing with, you know, the heartbreak of Middle Church burning down this historic church that was just a wonderful place led by um, the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. And so I just want to I want to underline what a great example that is of collaboration and cooperation uh, going forward. Well, and it owes to the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. The fact that she has been a friend of mine for years meant that this felt natural. This was not forced. This was not a PR stunt. This was a natural outgrowth of relationship and a natural outgrowth of her allyship. And what I particularly appreciate about her, she is a world-class theologian. She is on many occasions on the world stage. And yet when we speak, she listens as well as anybody I know. And I feel really heard and really seen as a Jewish person. I hope that I'm similarly able to hold space for her as a Christian leader, as a leader of the black community, as a leader in so many different spheres. But what a beautiful example of listening deeply and then speaking. And Middle Collegiate Church just put put out a set of tweets that have gone viral about what Christians can and should do to combat anti-Semitism. The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis and I actually have an op-ed coming out uh, in the New York Daily News about allyship against anti-Semitism. And it's because she has been standing and doing this for years. So one of the things I'm grateful for is that the upswing feels recent, but the relationships are deep and enduring and will not bend in the face of this kind of hatred. And so, yes, there is a storm and it feels like we've got oak trees that are standing tall and doing just fine. Mm, that so is a I feel, beautiful image. It, I mean, how blessed. Um, when in world history have Jewish diasporas had allyship like this? Yes, there's anti-Semitism, and unfortunately, that's an old story, and it has resurged in ways that are heartbreaking. But I cannot think of a time in world history when we have had allies like this. And so I'm that's filled an with extraordinary, gratitude. yeah. That's an extraordinary perspective that I had not thought about. That like this, you know, that and uh, I, I'm I'm glad you feel that. I know that, you know, you can count me among that, not only because of my own uh, Jewish background, but be- also just as a, as a fellow human, as a Christian clergy, you, you know it's there. And it, the truth is, is that many of us will stand with you right there, not, not with a distance, but right there. And I think that's what you and, you and Jackie are showing. Who Jackie, by the way, is, uh, is also showing up for... LGBTQ people this week and is is uh, joined us in Washington to um, to to um, to show up for the Respect for Marriage Act. So she is an ally in many ways and someone who feels deeply. It's it's a, a lot of it is about empathy and and compassion. Uh, you know, I think that that's like a really uh, a valuable um, a valuable principle. Go on, go on with uh, with gratitude. 
I'm grateful to live in a democracy that is still alive. And with all of its challenges, with all of the suffering that we have experienced, with the rise of genuine totalitarians, with the rise of genuinely anti-democratic forces, Americans have made clear that they are grateful for democracy. And I am grateful not just for democracy, but for my fellow Americans. And I'm blessed to have relationships across a surprisingly large swath of the American political spectrum. Um, and I am always heartened by the people who are in a very different political space than me, with whom I can still share some values. And so I am grateful for values-based conversations that are moving away from the tired tropes of politics and that will enable us to figure out what we do share and how we can build together going forward. And I'm grateful for wonderful teachers, many of whom are Jewish, but increasingly many of whom are not Jewish. Um, Paul, you have been a teacher and mentor for years. Dr. Ibu Patel, teacher and mentor for years. Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, teacher and mentor for years. Rabbi Ben Spratt on the Upper West Side, one of the finest congregational rabbis in the country, himself uh, the bearer of a remarkable faith journey with a dad who grew up Mormon and a mother who grew up Jewish and navigating all of the aspects of identity in a beautiful way. And I feel like I it's, am- is it, But I, you know what I'm, what I'm getting from you is like a surround sound gratitude, which is about like, it's, it's not just, um, you know, I'm glad I have this really awesome house. You know, it's not, you know, I mean, and, and things, which things are, things matter. It's fine. But, but also like a national perspective, an ally perspective, a, uh, a sense of, um, a, a sense of, um, the teachers. I think that it helps us to think widely about what is, um, what gratitude can be and how expansive it can be. It's almost like the longer you spend with gratitude, the more, you can look around and say, oh, right, there's another area. So, so I just really appreciate the kind of the 360 you're giving. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and I know, I know it also goes very personal and, and close to you. Yes. I, I just want to um, underline something that you said, which is gratitude as a practice. It's not a state of being, it's a practice. It's sometimes one of the more difficult practices for human beings um, for us as clergy, when I come back from a funeral and a part of me is broken inside, it is hard to feel gratitude. And for people who are suffering in so many dimensions, it is hard. And what I love about the practice of it and the Jewish approach to it, it's hold all of the things, including gratitude. Don't have gratitude eclipse other emotions, have it in addition to them. And at home on a day-to-day -day basis, um, for those of us who are blessed to be parents, um, there is gratitude mixed in with beautiful moments of frustration and agita and sleep deprivation and uh, too many details to hold and a sense that you're dropping the ball somewhere and the sense that um, you, know, you should have shown up differently, you could have done better, the self-doubt and all of it. And I'm blessed to have this uh, beautiful, almost four-year-old uh, in my life as my child. And I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for all that he's teaching me. And um, we're, we're in an interesting moment where he is uh, 
um, navigating questions of gender in a way that I never did as a four-year-old. And I'm grateful that it is something that he is able to imagine for himself in an open-ended way. And I'm so grateful that he is living in an age where he doesn't have to be just socialized into a gender. Um, he is by sex gender. I default to male. And there are moments when um, uh, he really um, identifies as female and it changes on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I am somebody who is sort of a cis, straight, Ashkenazi dude bro who does his best, but really does not know a lot about a lot, especially with regard to gender and LGBTQ rights. And I was talking to a, a colleague and they said that the phenomenon is gender creative, that he's figuring it out and that that's a beautiful thing. And uh, I'm grateful that we live in a time where I don't have to um, tell him to be tough and tell him not to feel emotions and tell him that he's male, right or wrong, and tell him in very rigid ways what maleness is. I, for the life of me, could not put into words what it is to be a man. Um, so how am I gonna tell my four-year-old what it is to be a male? And so I feel really blessed at home and totally uh, Well, let me, let me just like, let, let's not like, this is amazing. And it's so interesting because um, last week we had a, um, a, a wonderful woman, Reverend Garcia, uh, who is a, a, a trans woman, um, uh, ELCA pastor. And, um, you know, I think that you're being able to not shut this down instead to, to look at what is evolving to be there and love your child, answer questions as best you can, and to recognize that you're like, like any issue, we're all going to get some things wrong when it comes to child rearing. Um, we're going to get things wrong, fact. Uh, but that you're open to this, I'm going to say I'm grateful for for you, and I'm so I'm so thankful that you're trying, that you're you're open to it. It's like it's amazing, and so I just want to I want to say how grateful I am. Like you know, we're going to have a grateful fest here, but I just think this is amazing, and it's first you know I do you know as a rabbi dude bro, which is my new name for you from here on <laughs> in, uh, is you know to to really try to do your best and to realize that there are resources out there when the time comes. Um, um, and uh, and so I just want to acknowledge what, what how interesting it is to bring that um, amazing you know to to transform that from a challenge and a difficulty into an opportunity and a blessing. That is like that. That's like a mind. That that, that that's a heart game, and I just really think it's beautiful. Well, you know, we were talking about teachers earlier, and. For those of us blessed to have children, they are our greatest teachers. And yeah. for me, as somebody who <laughs> is narrow in his understanding of so many things, to be able to sit with a four-year-old who says, right now, I'm a princess because I want to play alone. And he associates it, I think, with Frozen and Elsa and some of those characters. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he's saying it with a degree of confidence that like, who am I to say, no, you're not a princess. Like he's very confident. They are very confident. 
I, I don't even know what gender to ascribe. At that moment, she is very confident that she is a princess. And there are so many things to be worried about when it comes to parenting. And if my kid wants to describe herself, himself, themselves uh, in a particular way at a particular moment, that's just not on my top thousand concerns. Like <laughs> concern number one, be a good human being. Concern number two, learn a lot of really important things. Uh, concern number three, find a meaningful path in life where you can contribute to society. Uh, concern number four, um, know that you are part of this incredible people called the Jewish people. Um, concern number five, find your voice. Um, like those are my really big concerns. And uh, it, it's really nice to have concerns placed in a perspective. Yeah. And the yeah. immediacy of it, you know, when you're with a four year old, who cares about five minutes from now? It's at this moment, this is what's going on. And it is so clarifying. And so, what was an abstract conversation about gender, I, I really do feel grateful that it is being taught by somebody that I owe such a duty of care for and love tremendously and in very specific moments feels one way and in very specific moments feels another. Mm -hmm. And when you're, uh, you know, when the horizon chronologically is like two minutes, his entire life is within a particular realm. And male, female, princess, dancer, whatever, whatever it might be. And so why would I break that? I mean, there are moments yeah. when, when he thinks he's an airplane. Why would I be more concerned that he thinks he's a princess than, a, than an inanimate object? Um, and so I'm just, <laughs> I'm grateful for the learning. Uh, I will say there are moments of uh, panic, of emotion, of total confusion, of second guessing myself that emerge from uh, the fluidity of gender expression by my kid. Um, and so I, I think I'm also grateful to have a spouse who is much more sophisticated on this and much else. Um, I think if I were navigating this as the Ashkenazi cis uh, dude bro, straight dude bro that I am, I would be really lost. But I've got this great kid and I've got this great spouse and so whatever is going on inside of me, um, I can sort of, I, I have good resources, not just, you know, in, in uh, public groups and not just in other fora, but right at home. And who knows? I have no idea how my kid is going to identify in 10 years. Um, it's yeah. hard to know minute by minute. But right now, if he's trying to figure out if he's an airplane or a princess, I just don't feel the need to preference one very much. <laughs> well, I think I think that's awesome. We need to take another break, but there's more still ahead on this week's show. Up next, more with Rabbi Joshua Stanton. And later, some of the faith voices that came to Washington earlier this month in support of the Respect for Marriage Act. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You can also find links to topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. 
You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. For Progressive Voices, I'm John Sinton, and this is a turning point. Today, normal wins. With some votes still to be counted, we know at least three things. The Senate remains in Democratic hands, and the House appears to have gone to the Republicans. Two, the red wave that was supposed to sweep election deniers and fascist-adjacent anti-majority candidates into office were themselves swept into history's dustbin. And three, predictive polling is wrong again. Exit polls, which are definitively the only polls that mattered, show that while 20% of midterm voters supported ridiculous and repeatedly disproven election-denying lies and conspiracy theories, 80% of Americans are not conspiracy theorists. They voted for normal candidates, are normal themselves, and demand normalcy from those we entrust to govern us. Polls preceding the election said the economy was all that mattered. Exit polls said different. Abortion and democracy, which seemed like such moving issues in the summer, had supposedly flamed out and taken a back seat to inflation. But the polls turned out not to be predictive. As Karl Rove said on Fox News on election night, polling is broken. He said, let's not kid ourselves. We had a golden era of polling when we all had landlines and we answered them. Now, does anybody here have a landline? So predictive polling is a gigantic waste of time and money. I spent a long time in the consumer research business performing studies for radio and television. It started out easy. You call people at random, seeking the right age, gender, socioeconomic combination. You pay them a small sum to participate in a qualitative focus group. So qualitative research is where the opinions of a few carefully chosen respondents are extrapolated to reflect the opinions of society at large. To backstop focus groups, you also mount large, statistically valid quantitative studies. Well, by the early 90s, as wireless phones became ubiquitous, finding qualified respondents for both types of research got harder. We upped the incentives, and that worked for a while. But once the smartphone came along, people cut their landline service and became really hard to find. The real killer, though, was the fact that we were running into a ton of what are known as qualified refusals. Those are people who are the right demographic mix, but hang up as soon as they're aware that they're being pulled. And as David Letterman used to joke, if you've ever been pulled, you know just how painful that can be. Dwight Douglas, a retired political advertising analyst for Media Monitors, told me, quote, most pundits overstate polls and underestimate the electorate. Douglas has also got thoughts on why polling has gone off the rail. He told me, viciousness and vitriol have ruined political research, plus the theory that a person says one thing on the phone, sometimes just to get off the phone, might be opposite from their purchasing or voting decision is a valid supposition. Post-election research carries much more value than pollster predictions after an election. You can ask, who did you vote for and why? That's where sentiment toward policy direction is best found. 
The smartphone phenomenon meant that pollsters totally missed the youngest voters who showed up for democracy and choice. John Dick, the CEO of Civic Science, today's Bible of, communer, of consumer research, said, Gen Z made its presence known in a big way. I have told you repeatedly they're going to save the world, and now they're strapping on their capes. If you aren't laser-focused on understanding what makes today's teens and young adults tick, let me know so I can short your stock. People love to talk. They love to make predictions based on their own desires, a phenomenon known as confirmation bias. Subject matter expertise is, of course, optional. Cal and UCLA professor Scott Galloway put it this way, our brains make it easy for our ambition to exceed our ability. The Dunning-Kruger effect describes a demonstrated cognitive weakness that the less we know about something, the more we overestimate our knowledge. That's why stupid people, oh, and people who make great cars and then buy media companies, are so dangerous, unquote. Apparently, no one can resist deriding Elon Musk, who, in fairness, does make a pretty easy target. So, right or mostly wrong, they never stop. Today, Morning Consult is revealing a poll that says Donald Trump would garner less than half of Republican primary voters if a vote was held today. That's down from 57% in August. I'm not sure it's believable or even relevant. Reality TV got the former guy elected. Apprentice fans thought him to be a master of the business universe. Well, he isn't. He never was. What he was was a TV star in a scripted drama that paraded as an unscripted drama. That's the dirty little secret of reality TV. Meanwhile, he fights on blaming pollsters and everybody but himself for his dangerous and silly slate of now-repudiated candidates. He hasn't quite realized his need to call the leg warehouse since he doesn't have one to stand on. For Progressive Voices, I'm John Sinton. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. My guest is Rabbi Joshua Stanton. For you, I'm just curious, you know, you, you're the senior rabbi in, at East End Temple. Um, you have so many uh, opportunities. I'm curious how you imagine yourself growing in the next, like, 20 years as, like, as you see the Jewish community transforming. What do you think is the, for, for you and, um, and for the Jewish community, where would you like to see things go in the coming decades? I think I need to matter less and less, speaking very bluntly. We have become overly focused on clergy. We have become almost ecclesiastical in our notions of clergy as people who intercede. You can't do a baby naming. You can't do a bar bat bi mitzvah. You can't do a wedding. You can't do an anything from the standpoint of Jewish tradition clergy are teachers, 
Clergy are thinkers. Clergy are community organizers. Clergy are public representatives of the Jewish community. That's it. Every single life cycle event can be done without clergy. And so we are moving into an era of empowerment. The time when it was great to be the sage on the stage has long since passed us by. And so I'm so excited to support, empower, and cultivate leaders at East End Temple and beyond. And I wonder openly whether those trends are also present in other religious communities. If that is what we are moving towards in an era that I would describe as an awakening and not an awakening in the sense that we're gonna see churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, humanist centers built on every corner, but an awakening in the sense of uh, renewed interest in community that has higher purpose, is mission-driven, and brings out the best in us as people. And I would love to see religious and spiritual community be a place of leadership cultivation so that we have many more leaders in all parts of society doing so much more good in countless realms. If we can I think do that's that. so interesting. I've, I have, I, we have not talked about that, and I find that fascinating. And I do think that, you know, that is well, certainly in my tradition, you know, in the Baptist tradition, the idea of priesthood of all believers. This is, you know, that's a Protestant idea, but no, a nation very, of priests, that's Moses. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there you are. I mean, sure, yeah, like everything, we just lifted it from the Jews and said, look what we invented. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the uh, no, but I, I, I will say, like, you know, almost like to be a, a Baptist clergy person is an oxymoron because it's like, you know, everybody. Has the, should have the right. I mean, uh, you know, to do to do the thing, you know, and uh, and to to recognize that everybody has the right, not only for their own spirituality, but also for their own, you know, their own practice. And so I I think that that's a really beautiful um, a beautiful trend that I feel like in some ways you are for, you are maybe leading rather than following. So so that's really really great. I wonder. Um, in, in you know as we wrap up just just maybe you could just say um, a few more things that when you look around the world that you you know that that you um, one that you find awesome because we kind of skipped over that like what's awesome to you uh, and and right and I I guess I'm looking for like what right now what is present for you as far as awesome broken and grateful. The Jewish community and so many communities often overlook a miracle in our time, and that is Nostra Aetate and the Second Vatican Accords. What had been in effect, if not in intention, one of the largest systematically anti-Semitic organizations in the world has become the largest philo-Semitic organization in the world. How blessed are we to have a Pope whose partner in transition, the administration uh, of the papacy, his transition partner was the chief rabbi of Argentina. In what world are we living? This is a miracle. Why is it that Jews, even with the rise in anti-Semitism in Pew studies and Robert Putnam studies are the most liked religious community in the US? I have to say the Catholic church probably has played a pivotal role in that 
Hmm. Cardinals up and down the line in the United States. Priests up and down the line have a love and respect and regard for their Jewish colleagues and friends that was unimaginable to my grandparents. We are living into a miracle. And it is such a significant transformation, such a Copernican shift that we often don't even pay attention to it. And so I just have to say, as a rabbi, I feel such gratitude to the Catholic Church. And I can't imagine a hundred years ago, much less a thousand years ago, many rabbis feeling grateful to anyone in the Catholic hierarchy, much less the institution of the Catholic Church as a whole. And it has done something extraordinary. And so, yes, there's really ugly history. The Crusades, awful for the Jews. The Inquisition, awful for the Jews. So many moments in Catholic Jewish history, really just a bloodbath with Jewish blood being spilled. How amazing is it that we are living in a fundamentally different time? I could not be more grateful. Mm. Whether a divine miracle or a miracle wrought by human beings, it is a miracle in the fullest yeah. sense that I understand miracles. What about, what about uh, something that uh, you are confronted with the brokenness of? As a rabbi, I have never seen more widespread human suffering than during pandemic and whether we're post-pandemic or peri-pandemic or mid-pandemic right now, a huge number of people are not okay. The rates of depression, the rates of suicidality, the rates of drug use, the rates of domestic violence, the rates of violence outside the home are like nothing I have encountered before. And I see people's brokenness and correspondingly, I internalize some of the brokenness. I will be the first one to publicly say one of the pandemic keepers in my life is an amazing psychiatrist and the blessing of antidepressants. I did so many funerals and felt suffering myself so much that I experienced brokenness within. And I cannot recommend more highly finding a good mental health professional for you, for everybody. All of us are due for a mental health checkup and probably a physical checkup. And a whole bunch of us are due for more, uh, more intensive interventions. I certainly was one. I certainly am one. And I'm guessing the majority of us are too, given what I'm seeing and hearing, not just in my community, but far more widely. Mm, thank you for that word. I think that's just, it, it, that is so life-saving and it's so important from a religious leader to acknowledge that and to recognize that we, we all need help when we need help. And we do not need to be ashamed to ask for it. We need to find ways to get it. And, uh, and I just think that's just incredibly important, especially, again, coming from a religious leader where you're supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to have all the answers. You're supposed to be like, you know, one with God. So what else could you want? And just to instead to, to, to demonstrate self-care 
uh, is is a way to care for the, your community. So I just I, I just really appreciate those words. And and finally, you know, final words. What what's your what's your top line gratitude moment? I was going on a trip two weeks ago, and my kid almost got out one of the most beautiful thoughts, and then in typical four-year-old speak, narrowly missed it. And he turns to me before I go, he gives me a big hug, says, I love you, daddy. And he says, daddy, when you're gone, I'll be thinking. And what he meant was, I'll be thinking of you, but it was, daddy, I'll be thinking. And I thought on so many levels, both what he was going for and what he actually said, uh, were it was just beautiful. And it was one of those moments where you're like, my kid must have been thinking for a really long time about exactly what to say. And even though it was halfway to a fully formed expression of it, it was the most beautiful thing I could have imagined. That's wonderful. Can you, uh, could, could we close out with a, um, some kind of a gratitude blessing from the Jewish tradition, either, either sun or spoken? Yes. Hakarat HaTov is the practice of recognizing the good that others bring into the world and into our midst. It is a practice of seeing other people more fully. It is the blessing of feeling their goodness in our lives. It is the possibility of experiencing awe in more moments. It is the opportunity to see the goodness within ourselves too. May we go around our day-to-day -day lives, not missing a moment to express gratitude and to feel gratitude within, not just for the big moments, the grand moments, but for the Nisim Bechol Yom, the miracles of everyday life that adorn our lives and are one of its greatest forms of blessing. Amen. Joshua Stanton, rabbi of East End Temple in Manhattan and a senior fellow at Klau. He's co-author of the powerful book, Awakenings, American Jewish Transformation, Identity, Leadership, and Belonging. Joshua, thank you for being with us on this Thanksgiving edition, and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. We need to take another break, but there's more still ahead on this week's show. Up next, some of the faith voices raised up in support of the Respect for Marriage Act earlier this month. You're listening to State of Belief Radio brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what do the results of the midterm elections mean for healthcare reform at the national level? Could they have an effect on the increasing corporatization of healthcare? 
To find out, we asked Michael Leidy, president of Healthy California Now. I think the federal level is tough to gauge. I think we can say that the really big threats to Medicare and Social Security are off the table because the Republicans don't have both houses. So their negotiating positions to leverage the Biden administration is weakened. They were definitely gonna go after Medicare, maybe even raising the eligibility age. Can you imagine being subject to private insurance until you're age 70 instead of 65? That was being discussed by the Republicans. So I think there is going to be a need politically to address healthcare inflation. Now, what that usually means when you're not doing single payer is restricting access to the services and so trying to make changes on the delivery side or schemes like ACO reach or privatized things like Medicare Advantage. We know in California, CodeWAC has covered it, that uh, Medicare for all single payer can save people, individuals, working families, seniors even, five to $9,000 a year. We know that the state of California can save $150 billion, $158 billion a year by 2030. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. This was an actual New York Times headline. President Biden feels buoyant that as he nears his 80th birthday, he confronts a decision on whether to run in 2024 that has some Democrats uncomfortable. Another classic by the New York Times pitch bot. Donald Trump is four years younger. They're yeah. roughly the same age. Chuck Grassley, I don't even know if you can carbon date him. Chuck think. Grassley is yeah. 11 billion years old. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. In coalition with a diverse set of partners, Interfaith Alliance brought faith leaders from across the nation to Washington, D.C. earlier this month to visit Senate offices and urge passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. Hi, I'm Dr. Sabrina Dent, president of the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. And I support the Respect for Marriage Act because every human being is worthy of dignity and respect as we're, as we're encouraged by our faith traditions to love one another. We should also respect one another. And every marriage and every family should be protected in this country. And so it's for that reason that I've asked my senator to support this, uh, the Respect for Marriage Act. Quality Act, and I ask you to do the same. My name is Reverend Don Abram, and I am the founder and executive director of Pride in the Pews. I'm elated to be with the Interfaith Alliance to uh, really show our support for uh, the Respect for Marriage Act. Uh, it is incredibly important that people of faith, particularly black people of faith, uh, show that we are in support of equal protections under the law. We should refute and reject any notion which suggests that some marriages are worthy of protection and equal rights and other marriages are not. So I'm just thrilled to be able to lend my voice to this incredibly important fight. I'm Maggie Garrett and I'm with Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oftentimes anti-LGBTQ 
um, discrimination is cloaked in the language of religion, but actually true religious liberty and marriage equality are compatible. In fact, real religious freedom leads us to marriage equality. And that is why I applaud the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. My name is Sermon Stobnagel. I'm the Global Affairs Advisor for SeekNet and the treasurer for the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund. My daughter's ancestors came here on the Mayflower and as a Sikh American, I want them to know that their right to self-determination and to choose who they love is not only sacred, but is protected by the law and our government every day of their lives. So I'm Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, the founding executive director of the Beard Western Liberation Initiative and a United Church of Christ minister. And I support the Respect for Marriage Act because I believe that everyone not only has the right to love who they love, but to celebrate that love in holy matrimony and to protect that love and that union legally. Religion should no longer be used as a weapon to hurt LGBTQ people and denying them protections for their unions hurts families and puts them in jeopardy. I have friends who are a lesbian couple who have a beautiful daughter and their union and their family is just as worthy of respect as any other family. And I believe that this legislation, the Respect for Marriage Act, ensures that everyone will be treated with dignity, respect, and humanity. And in closing, I'd like to offer you this prayer by Reverend Nicole Garcia, who's the director of FaithWorks at the LGBTQ Task Force in Washington, D.C. Oh, thank you very much for this opportunity. Creator Spirit, your sun shines upon the world that you created. We, the people of your creation, need your love. We need your guidance. We need you to appear in our lives so that we can realize that you have provided a glorious bounty for us all. Let us realize and recognize that we can have all we need by sharing with what, what we have with all those around us. Open our hearts, open our minds, and fill us with your love so that we can reach out to the widow and the orphan and provide to all those who need that which you bestowed upon us. I ask this through your generous blessing and generous love. Amen. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you will consider being a partner in this crucial work 
by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.